Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. To their credit, you won't find me saying this very often, Canavan and One Nation and Babbitt are unavowedly pro-fossil fuels, right? They love the stuff. So the Greens, congratulations, move this little thing. And who did they get on board with them, those guys? That shows, with respect, they are wrong, and it shows their policy solution doesn't survive contact with reality. Hello, lovely people of podcasts. Welcome to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy. I am political editor of Guardian Australia and delightfully with me in the pod cave in Canberra this week is Chris Bowen, the Minister for Climate Change and Energy. Hello, Chris. Here we are, Murphy, in the pod cave. Here we are. Here we are. Now, Chris is in the pod cave. If you've been following the news, you'll know this is for many obvious reasons, but let's just outline them quickly before we drill into the the various things we're going to get through in this chat. Uh, The government has delivered an annual statement to the parliament about progress in terms of its climate ambitions. There's a whole bunch of reports attached to that. Uh, There was a big development in energy policy, I think, just over a week ago? A week ago, exactly, at the time of recording. Yes, Yes, which we'll get into as well. You know, one of the biggest policy shifts in this space uh, since uh, we tried and failed to have a carbon price to oversee a transition. Anyway, never mind. Sad stories. Um, uh, so that there's that, and uh, very shortly, Chris will be on a plane flying uh, in the direction of Dubai. For, Hopefully, in that general direction. Well, yes, yes, right, yes yeah. it would be embarrassing if you flew in another direction uh, for the UN-led climate talks COP twenty twenty eight. This is COP twenty eight. That's right. Yes, yes COP twenty eight. Yes. So anyway, we're going to go through all of that uh, over the next little bit. So let's just start with the climate statement. Let's start there. So you delivered that this week. Uh, I think candidly, you obviously listed all the policy that the government has engaged in uh, since being elected, and it's a lot, but you also said there's more to do. Uh, The Climate Change Authority also released uh, some independent advice, which was tabled at the same time, which was just a polite hurry up on a range of fronts. And the sort of crystallising quote, I think, in that CCA work was that we're running out of time for a prosperous transition, uh, which is a quite a clarifying thought. So um, we do need to hurry up, right? Well, we've got 73 months uh, uh, by the time this goes to air, it'll be 72 months um, until 2030. So yes, we need to really put uh, continue to have our foot on the accelerator. And this is the point I make, you know, and I understand and respect people saying, oh, you're not doing enough by 2030, but 72 months is a big lift, a big effort to get everything done that we said we will do. And, you know, you've heard me say, and I mean it, it's ambitious but achievable. No point being ambitious and not achievable. No point being achievable but not ambitious. So you're right, today we put out 
One, the climate change statement. Two, the climate change authority advice. Three, the projections and forecasts uh, and national inventory of the last quarter and the last year. So a whole bunch of very you know, important information out transparently today for all to see. Now, what the projections show is that we're now on track with government policy for 42% emissions reduction by 2030. So it was under the previous government, their target was 26 to 28. They said we were getting to 30. With our statement last year with the policies we put in place until then, it lifted to 40 and now today it lifts to 42, which is edging close to 43, you know, but I'm not complacent about it. There's still a lot of things that have to happen, but I'd take 42 over 30 any day of the week. Um, but it's a big lift. I mean, for example, I know we'll talk about renewable energy, but when we came to office, renewable energy was 33% of our grid. We're taking it to 82% in seven years. It's a big job and a big lift. And yes, in this entire transition, Murph, across the entire decarbonisation of the economy, and I, as you know, you and I have talked about it several times, many times, I see it very much as an economic opportunity for our country. But the idea that it's all going to go linear and smoothly and everything's, you know, there's, it's going to be a straight line, that just doesn't survive contact with reality. Mm. It's a big job with big obstacles to overcome and at the same time, massive opportunities. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get into both. You reach or you release the projections, emissions projections and what's happened over the last 12 months. You're right, obviously on track uh, nearly to nearly to the target, but also emissions rose over the last 12 months. Mm. Now, there are entirely valid reasons why that's the case. Post-COVID, Post-COVID mainly, COVID, yes. Yeah, we all fly on planes yep. and, you know, do other things now. But, uh, you know, you, you're sort of repeating this idea that it's that it's all a big lift, which is right and sort of can, I think listeners can engage with that concept. You've got to move fast, you know. Yeah. You've got to accelerate and quickly. But it's sort of, it underscores like the rise in emissions over the last 12 months does underscore the step change problem, right? It's sort of like there's a big, big task to basically retool the economy substantially, as you say, in what would you say? 70, 72, 72 months. months. 72 but months, which is counting? how, I, yeah, well, that's how I like to think about it because it concentrates your mind about yeah. how big the lift is and how fast the job has to be. And I don't disagree with you. Yes. Um, now, emissions are up because of post-COVID, mainly because of transport, 0.8%, um, mainly because of transport, people moving around more, both in cars and particularly aeroplanes, uh, up substantially. And, you know, you don't want to get emissions down by reduced economic activity. You want to get emissions hmm, down sure. by more efficient carbon uh, emissions with increasing economic activity. That's the whole That's the whole objective, um, objective of all our policies. Um, but, yeah, look, out very transparently, but, you know, the, the projections out today, which are done by my department, are very, very clear. You know, emissions reduction is up, you know, edging closer, as I said, to 43. I've always said 43 is a floor, not a ceiling, but at the same time, I don't pretend it's easy to get to 43 because it isn't. Yeah, well, that's sort of the issue. Like, there are many components of getting getting to Correct, and especially when you're starting in 2022, Murph. I yes. mean, if we were starting in 2019 or 2016 or 2013, you know, you give yourself a much bigger runway. Yeah. But starting in 2022 with an eight, then at that point, an eight-year plan to 2030, you're starting very late. You are the kid who forgot to study for the exam and you're pulling an all-nighter. Yeah, uh, to get a to good get result, no, yes. No, that's right, that's right. Um, so let's sort of think about a couple of things. Getting uh, the sort of step change required in order to meet the target. 
we're going to need a transport strategy, for example. Are we ever going to see a fuel efficiency standard? Yes, and more than that, you'll see well, it. You'll, like this you'll, century you'll see, or, or yeah. you know, before we're all dead? Or, yes, you know. yes. You'll see it more than that. You'll see a fuel efficiency standard. We've said we'll do one. I mean, that, that in, in itself is a big move by a government. Remember, Josh Frydenberg said he'd do it. It lasted from the, his morning press conference at well, lunchtime. Well, well, but I'm asking this actually, you know, in good faith because I have seen many governments promise me a fuel efficiency standard and not well, one has turned up. Well, yet. the previous government promised it on one or two occasions, but the right wing of their party killed it within hours. Well, we started with John Howard. Yeah, you know, yeah, all the, that. And of course, I mean, the United States has had one since the 1970s. Yes, exactly. So and, where is it? And that is why, and that is why, Murph, you might, I mean, I think people would understand that emissions from Australian cars would be higher than European cars. People would understand that uh, 40% higher, but also 20% higher than the United States cars. Yes. I mean, that shows how bad our fleet is. It, look, Catherine King and I have, one, been doing a lot of work on it. It's, it's actually very detailed work. Um, we've done a lot of modelling and analysis and design work. And secondly, uh, we made a rather large announcement last week, the biggest investment in renewable energy. I mean, you know, I, I can, I, you know, we do sort of one announcement at a time. Yeah, you don't, sure. We don't announce the biggest investment in renewable energy on Thursday and announce, you know, fuel efficiencies on Friday. Uh, you know, <laughs> you, you, I'll, I'll, take you, I'll take you back to the Climate Change Authority, say we're running out of time no, for we, a prosperous transport is, and Transport is very important. That's why we're committed to doing a fuel efficiency standard. Mm. It's also important we get it right. It's important we get it right. We've got to get it through the parliament. Yes. And then and we have to see it sensibly implemented, right? So a range of, you know, I can just tell you, a huge amount of work has got into the fuel efficiency standards, as I think will be self-evident when Catherine and I release them. Which is? Well, we will release them when they're ready. Mm, doesn't sound like this year, though, does well, it? Well, it, it, it's not that far away, Catherine, but we are... We have been working on it and we'll continue to work okay. on it. Let's do. Let's go back to energy uh, and what what happened there with the expansion of the uh, com- capacity investment scheme. As I said at the top, uh, one of the biggest moves in energy policy for a decade uh, because there's a very big conceptual call there, which is there's a big transition that has to happen. Taxpayers have to underwrite it in the energy market in order to achieve, you know, the desire of increasing renewables and storage and all of that sort of stuff, right? So just sort of bookmarking that conceptual call that you've made. That's why it's a big deal. Yes. Now, you've got a phalanx of interest groups, most of which are utterly respectable in terms of the arguments that they're making, pointing out at the moment that Australia is not winning the global race for capital. We've got, and you said as much in your climate statement, well, you didn't say it as bluntly as I'm about to, but you sort of did, right? We've got the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. We've got uh, favourable incentives in Britain. We've got favourable incentives in Canada, in Japan. These are massive, massive programs that are sucking in capital from all around the world. Uh, Basically... You know, all kinds of respectable people are saying the government has to make the same conceptual call that it's made in the in the energy sector across the whole transition, that we're not going to get this done unless taxpayers underwrite the transition in various ways, either, you know, uh, production tax credits or, yeah. you know, de-risking investments by private capital or, or whatever, right? You, right? Do you accept that you have got to make the same call right across the transition in various, you know, various sectors? I, I see it slightly differently, Murph, with respect, um, and let me, let me run through why. We can perhaps come back to energy because I fundamentally... Um, you know, you, you're right, a big intervention in energy last week. And that was because we're, in my words, doing well, but not well enough. Yep. We needed to see the big pipeline of renewable energy investment in Australia 
which there is a huge pipeline, come back to that, we need to set turn into final investment decision. Yeah, well, okay, well, but, but, let's, but investment had fallen off, though. That's part well, of the okay, problem. Well, let's, well, you want to do electricity now and then come back to the broader. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So the chief executives and chairs of all the big renewable energy investors around the world been through my office at some point during yep. the last 12 months. Yep. They all say you are now the key marker for us or in the top three. You know, you pass your Climate Change Act, we get your government. You clearly want us to come and invest. The last guys didn't. We're here. And a big pipeline, you know, we can run through the various indicators of the pipeline. There's a huge pipeline of renewable energy investment. Wasn't happening quickly enough, Mm. not getting to final investment decision fast enough, and not getting uh, through the planning system quickly enough. So all the impetus of the announcement we made last week is to change that, to really get it through. And that is to say, to maybe explain to the listeners what actually we did announce last week, the capacity investment scheme is an auction where we will say to 32 gigawatts, which is what what we need, to the investors, what's your minimum return you need? You know, what's, what's the baseline profit you need? And what's the maximum over and above which you'll share with the taxpayer? Yeah. So we're really giving them a really stable and certain middle ground to say, well, we can invest in Australia. We know for absolute certain we're going to make between X and X. This is now an deeply welcoming and stable policy environment for us to invest in. And they will now bid into the auction. Now, we did a pilot just to, you know, check our assumptions. Yeah. I, I and Penny Sharp, the New South Wales Minister, released the auction the day before I announced the big expansion. That added more than a gigawatt, more than a gigawatt. So we expected a bit under a gigawatt. We got such good bids, we could add more than a gigawatt which is more than the previous government put in in nine years, in one auction. So now we're going to take that and put that across the board. And also, importantly, a lot of people sort of didn't focus on the next part of the announcement. Of those 32 gigawatts, 18 gigawatts we're holding. Now, we're going to fund it all. We're going to – it's all Commonwealth underwritten, but 18 gigawatts we are holding to say to the states, come with us. Yes. Um, Because what we don't want to do – and I've said this very – bluntly to the states and you know I've got a great relationship with every one of the state energy ministers but said bluntly listen we're not going to come in and underwrite all these gigawatts to see them you know stuck in a state planning system yeah. or we, we want to work hand in glove yeah. so we're going to we're going to enter and we want to work with them on reliability because we've got to keep a reliable yeah, we need a strategic underneath reserve. and that's a strategic yeah. reserve which is really excess energy like have a redundancy of, of excess energy you can call upon in a crisis we don't have that at the moment hence you know um, last winter for example so it's really getting what is goodwill around the energy minister's table and there's huge goodwill between the state and territory energy ministers and myself and formalising that in agreements to really supercharge this transition because yeah. as I said I think I think there were plenty of indicators we're doing well like you know AEMO um, approved 6.8 gigawatts of connections last financial year, up from 4.2 the financial year before. That's good because mm, connections they, is a forward indicator. Sure, right? connections but, but they also said it wasn't moving fast yeah, enough. Yeah, but no, I agree. That's why we've done what we've done. We didn't do it for, you know, mm, giggles. Lols. We did, we, we did it because really it was taking the policy mechanism we already had in place, the capacity investment scheme, and really saying, well, this is working, so let's just do it properly yeah. uh, and, and underpin the lot. And that's it. And hence the state and territory ministers have responded. Now, let's move to your broader point because yeah. I think, Murph, I think what you were really getting at in that sort of commentary and question to me was I think about renewable energy-related manufacturing yep. and supply chain and the whole IRA response, yes. right? So that's not so much decarbonisation of our system. That's more playing our role in the global decarbonisation. Yeah. And, yes, we've said we've got more to do there. We've got Hydrogen Head Start, which was a deposit, a down payment, as we work through how we more broadly respond. 
Hydrogen Head Start, we decided, was the key urgent priority because, to be frank, we were already seeing hydrogen investment either walking out the door or threatening to walk out the door to the United States. We weren't going to let that happen. So we said, well, hydrogen is the urgent part. Hydrogen Head Start is to support green hydrogen um, through a, you know, effectively um, a bid-in system and uh, an auction so we get the best bids to say, well, we want to develop green hydrogen in Australia. Um, it's had huge interest from the sector, so that shows me that we've got the design right. Yep. Uh, and we'll be making further announcements well, uh, very yes. soon. Isn't that excellent? Because mm. I was going to ask you about that specifically. So obviously I'm, you've been working up Um, responses, sort of, you know, how do we keep capital in Australia responses, given the international climate? You know, it is said around the traps that hydrogen head start, you know, could be expanded and that model applied to other industries or sectors of the transition. This is often said, uh, but hasn't turned up yet. Is this right? Well, um, what we have have said, the PM, the Treasurer, Ed Husick and me and Madeleine King in in her space is we have more to do on the IRA response. I yep. mean, yeah, whether, whether you call it renewable superpower plan or IRA response or yep. whatever it is, because it is an IRA response, but it's not just that because no, no, Europe's sure. done it, India's done it, Japan's done it, uh, Canada's done it. This is, we want to make more renewable energy in Australia. That's what we were talking about before, but we want to make more of the things that make renewable energy in Australia as well. So yes, we will have a broader IRA response as well, but hydrogen head head start. Well, again, again, we're we're pushing policy out the door at a rapid rate. Sure. I've been making like- But when is uh, this policy coming? It it, it again is coming quite soon, but I'm not making it on your podcast today. How soon? Uh, Well- Quite soon, but I'm not making it on your podcast Before today. We continue Christmas to look, Christmas is can I just say, Murph, Christmas is a bit of an arbitrary deadline. Sure, like the world doesn't stop on December no, twenty seven. No, no, no. you know, we, 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 you, know no. you can announce we will we will I've got more announcements to make this year, we've got more announcements to make next year. It is a constant um, you know, effort. Yes, conveyor belt. <laughs> conveyor no, belt of sure. good ideas. No, no, fine, um, fine. Just and... stick a pin in that for a second. I, 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 you know, I asked for that. That's fine. Um, but let's just track back, though, because, okay, if the response is to the sort of general conundrum that we're talking about, that we've got to keep capital in the country and capital is at risk of walking out the door and heading elsewhere because of incentives elsewhere, you know, the government can sort of sail forth and say, well, we've done energy. Uh, here's, you know, we'll, a supercharged hydrogen head start and accompanying pick your sector, you know, wherever else that we're going to support. But then you'll still have people saying, well, that's fine, but we actually need the government to, uh, you know, partner in transmission uh, investment. and well, we're doing that. Yes, but, but, <laughs> but there's all kinds of regulatory, that is a regulatory nightmare, all of that. And there will be, again, respectable people who will say, well, we'll put billions into this if we get a, a more favourable environment. There will be respectable people who say, we will help you develop a sustainable aviation yeah. sector if we get a production credit. Yeah. Like, so you sort of, you're answering me, but not. No, well, well, uh, I'm telling you, I agree there's more to do on the whole renewable manufacturing space, future made in Australia in the renewable space, yeah. right? And uh, I'm telling you again, a huge amount of work has been done on that between yes. me yes. and senior colleagues. I accept that. Uh, and But we are not announcing today, you know, I've today put out the climate statement and all the associated multitudes of documents. Last week, the biggest investment in renewable energy in Australian history. I'm not suggesting you're on the banana lounge, but I bring you back to the Climate Change Authority (laughs) saying that we are running out of time for a prosperous transition. This is why I am pushing this. And I'm the one who, you know, if my staff hear me say the number of months to 2030 again Again. at any point, they'll likely put a pin in their eye because it's my constant reminder to the system that we we have to move. 
move fast. And we are. Now, to your broader point about, well, electricity is a third of roughly third of the emissions and electricity emissions are coming down and yeah. they'll go down a lot faster with 82 percent uh, it's not the only reason to 82 percent reliability is a big problem as well which which our policy is is uh, fixing as yeah, well happy to come back to that but yep. to move on we also have said we've got a 2035 target yes to announce exactly we've got a, a proper, we've got a proper net zero that doesn't have to be until february 2025 but you know um, I'm, I'm semi-joking now well, yes yes why isn't that out tomorrow yes. Mrs. Murph? Mm. um and then uh we've got the 2050 plan australia has a 2050 plan at the moment mm. it's a joke mm. um it, it pains me to say that was the scott morrison mm. scamflet. I remember it. yes mm. we were there mm. um saw that movie that was the scott morrison scamphlet so that we've said we are ripping that up and doing a new one of those mm. and to underpin all that are six sector plans yes and six the sector plans weren't my idea they were really industry investors idea yeah Multiple investors, investors coming to me saying, look, yep. we really need to know what your plan is, what you think the decarbonisation pathway for yep. industry is, resources is, transport is. And I tested that with them and said, well, hang on, you know, you're the one with billions of dollars in your pocket. Um, this will be, you know, government investment will be important, but mm. private sector investment will be more important. Mm. Why do you need this? And they said, we really need to know what you think is the pathway so we know how to cater our investments. So, Okay. That's what we're doing. Um, and, you know, that work is well underway. We've put out the agriculture sort of consultation. And obviously we've talked about a big element in the transport plan. I'm co-writing them with each of my ministerial colleagues, consulting with the states and territories on the way. Huge conveyor bill to policy coming there as well. Yes. So, you know, it's all happening. Mm, certainly is. That's why you're in the pod cave. Um, let's think about COP now because uh, sadly we could do this for an hour, but we can't because you're busy. You're about to head off. Now, you've uh, you've done a bit of signalling pre-jumping on the aircraft about Australia's uh, positions in the broad hmm. mix of issues that will be before this particular COP. You've said a couple of times now that Australia will support stronger mitigation language. Mm. Now, I gather there's a couple of proposals doing the rounds. There is one proposal that calls for a phase-out of fossil fuels, and there is another that calls out for a phase-out of unabated fossil fuels. Which does Australia support? Well, let's see. Um, I, I support a strengthening of mitigation efforts around the world. The one call that we have had, the only official call, there's obviously there's a lot of discussions. I'm talking to all my ministerial counterparts around the world, late night, you know, middle mm. of the night teams meetings, which are a lot of fun when you're the Australian mm. climate minister Always. in the lead up to a, to a big climate conference. That's yep. perfectly fine. That's the, that's the system we work in. Um, at, at this point, the only official sort of proposal is the COP president's call mm -hmm. for a tripling of renewable energy and a doubling of energy efficiency, which we strongly support. Yep, both that is, of those. That we, we, and I don't know whether the COP will agree to that. Yeah. Because uh, to be frank, Murph, we go into this COP in a very challenging geopolitical mm, environment. Of course, right? yeah. Uh, you could say that the Middle East and Ukraine have got nothing to do with climate, but they don't help the sort of general zeitgeist of no, international of cooperation right no, no, now. of course. Um, and the G20 energy ministers and climate ministers uh, meetings were... Um, Difficult. Dis disappointing Difficult. failures. Mm. Um, and I said so at the time, mm. you know, and uh, I said in my contribution at G20, guys, if we keep doing this, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna fail a cop. We've got to get our act together. Mm. Um, now... Until and unless, until I arrive in Dubai and sit down with my ministerial colleagues and say, right, what are the concrete, that we are not yet at that stage, but I will be backing sensible strengthening of the global efforts and we'll see what coalition emerges. 
internationally in good company, but we'll be in that good company, you know. Mm. Um, unlike previous arrangements where Australia was in very bad company, blocking efforts, mm. I'll be in there yeah, we're out of working the for corner. a sensible outcome Yes, but to I've, get consensus across the board because that's what the COP president will need. Uh, COPs work on consensus for, for right yes. or for wrong. Yes, And you've got to have consensus. Mostly, to, mostly for wrong, to, yeah, be, well, to be clear. But you'd yeah. have to have yeah. consensus to break the consensus model. So that's going sure. <laughs> to be difficult. Sure. Um, so, you know, I'm in constant contact with the COP president himself and with other ministers. Um, but at this point, there's no sort of, well, let's let's strengthen the language this way or that way on mitigation. But we'll be in there arguing for a very sensible uh, uh, strengthening. I had thought that we were supporting the unabated phase out of well, we, I mean, fossil well, fuels, but you're just saying you can't go there. Well, no, the I'm, I'm saying I would support there. something, strength, I would support certainly a strengthening um, in that direction as we did in the PIF, yep. you know, and the G- G7, which we're not part of, they've gone down that road, but obviously, you know, uh, uh, we're supportive of those sort of general efforts. But I'm saying until I get there yes. and sit down with the COP president and with, I chair the umbrella group. So the umbrella group is, we have, um, you know, the COP works in groupings. Yes. And we're in the umbrella group mm. um, for, for want of a better word, mm. sort of those who don't fit into other groups like Europe. Um, and I, I chair that group of ministers. So that's right. that's Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom, who the United Kingdom used to be in the European group. I invited them into the umbrella group. This mm-hmm. is their first COP in with us. Mm-hmm. So it's Australia, United States, New Zealand, Canada, Ukraine, Israel, Norway. Mm. So quite a group. Interesting. And I intend to be quite an active chair of the umbrella group, And but that obviously means as chair of the umbrella group, bringing other countries so with, with I, us. Yes, and it's I not see. just about... Yes. And it's okay. not just about mitigation. That is my number one priority, frankly, but also there's loss and damage. There's yes. the global stock take. There's um, global finance of climate action. There's the adaptation pledges. This is actually a very busy COP yeah, agenda. it is. And we'll be sort of coordinating with what we call like-mindeds yes. to maximise the impact. So I'm not here saying, well, what we're going to you know, argue for is this full stop and that comma. Yeah. I'm saying the direction of travel that I'm supporting is a strengthening language. I also said at Lowy Institute, laid down some markers about what we think about loss and damage. Yes. Um, more than happy to talk about that because I know that's very important to people as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, we want to see progress there, but we want to see progress for our region. I don't want a model which doesn't work for the Pacific. Yeah, you want a Pacific-centred mm. Uh, landing point on yes. all of that. And interestingly, you also want, you know, the Gulf states and China to actually do more yeah, well, in terms my, of my, my global point, climate finance. Yeah, my point good there. Luck, good luck with well, that. Well, you know, I may or may not <laughs> succeed. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't think it's a – I think it's appropriate to point out, just for listeners who haven't followed this closely, in 1992 the world agreed on a thing called common but differentiated responsibility. It did. Which is all very well and important and still valid, yeah. right, which is we all have a responsibility – which is common, but it's different for developed countries and yeah, developing countries. Depending on countries. economic circumstances. But in 1992, they sort of said, well, this is the list of developed countries and this is yeah. the list of developing countries. Yeah. And guess what? The world has changed. Yes, the annex does require but an But the list is set in concrete. Mm, isn't that funny? And I make the point, one, this is not about sort of getting Australia to do less. This is about getting more mm. into the pie, yeah, into the pot. Maximising resources. And also, frankly, in all communities, to bring society with us. To say, you know, because the, you know, People who will find any reason to complain about anything international in this building will say, ah, oh, look, you know, you're doing this, but China's not putting any money in and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, to ensure that we have strong community support, I think it is appropriate for Australia to say, yes, we're up for, we're up for you know, we were on the transition committee for loss and damage 
discussions. We have been very active in promoting a good outcome. I've been consulting closely with Pacific ministers about what they want and need. but, you know, also, let's not just pretend that we can keep everything in stone from 1992. Yeah, but it's sort of interesting. I am being a bit sceptical about whether that balance will ever shift. It I'm not suggesting that it I'm going to waltz into no. Dubai and change it, you no, know, but no, no, I am no, saying no. I don't have a problem with saying, hey, guys, this can't go on forever no, like no, this. No, 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 I know you're not saying that, but it, but it is actually intriguing with the sort of rapprochements recently between our own Prime Minister and the Chinese leadership and also Joe Biden, that uh, both countries are saying climate change is an opportunity, obviously, for joint enterprise between yeah. bilaterally and also with the rest of the world. So it'd be kind of interesting. And it is. Really and, that, and I don't think, I don't think, and it, this is, you know, my comments about the 1992 annex are not just about China. It's, yeah. it's, yes, China is obviously included in that conversation, but, you know, it is a broader conversation as well. Yeah. Okay. We're on the clock. So let's quickly, uh, obviously Australia aspires to uh, host our own COP with mm. the Pacific in, is it 2026? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So do we expect any concrete movement forward on that front well, in Dubai? First question. Second question, okay. related though and, and, and important. Yes. You've been saying in this whole conversation, we've got policy coming out the wazoo and obviously that means the bureaucracy is very stretched, obviously trying to do this jumpstart mm. operation, right? Like just looking, observing it. It's, there's a lot of <laughs> lot of effort required. Mm. Um, cops are huge things, mm. massive things. Now, I understand sort of geostrategically why Australia thought it'd be a good idea to host one, but that's like a sinkhole of resources. <laughs> no, well, I, I don't mean that, sorry, I don't mean that pejoratively, but it's, it'll be a massive undertaking. Mm. So do you still think it's a good idea, given how much policy you actually have to crack on with? Yeah, you know, uh, look, I next... still think it's important for Australia. I think it's an important indicator that Australia has returned to the international realm of leadership, that we're even frankly regarded as a serious candidate. You know, um, win or lose, we wouldn't have been regarded as a serious candidate three years ago. Um, Not that the previous government would have even bothered to bid because, you know, we would have been laughed out of the room. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, uh, again, I mean, I've learnt a fair bit in this process. It's a bit like, you know, white smoke emerges um, and it's pretty opaque as to what happens up until that point, even when you're a candidate. There's no sort of hard and fast process. And in fact, the world has not yet agreed on who's hosting next year's COP, let yeah. alone 2026. Well, that's a complication, uh, though, isn't and it? That, and that'll be a that'll be something that uh, is, is a, already is, being. Is there some Eastern European? Yeah, tradition? there's is issues. Um, there's issues. Um, so that's sort of, and then the year after technically hasn't been resolved, although most sensible people think that will be Brazil because that's the natural sort of um, way of way things. of things. So that's more so. So 2027, or sorry, sorry, 2020. Five yes. is more certain than 2024 yeah. in terms of where the COP will be Go and figure. our bid has been for 2026. Yes. So this is all caught up in that little vortex yes. um, of international negotiations, which uh, I expect there'll be further discussions on. But not, may not move in a correct, concrete direction. Correct, yes. but, and, and still no regrets about actually taking this Oh, on. look, I still think it's important opportunity, particularly for the Pacific. I mean, when else can the Pacific, regardless of, you know, the, the, having the COP president being of the Pacific, i.e. in Australia, working closely with the Pacific. I can't think of a better way of getting their issues highlighted on the agenda because I've got to tell you they're not enough. You know, we all think about the Pacific and talk about the Pacific here in our conversations in Mm. Australia and our region. When I go to these meetings, um, they're not front of mind, to be honest, until I and we raise them. 
And this is a great opportunity to have them elevated more. Okay. Uh, let's just just quickly now, because you're massively on the clock, let's just, uh, we spoke about fossil fuels and I understand why you won't front run a process that Australia is chairing in terms of mm. specifying what language that we'll support. So just talking about domestic politics just quickly, obviously uh, the Greens in terms of left politics are getting quite a lot of purchase around, you know, no, no more fossil fuel projects. It's a very simple cut through message that aligns with the science where a lot of the stuff associated with the transition now is highly technocratic for, you know, utterly reasonable reasons. Recently, the WA Premier Roger Cook said uh, WA emissions going up would be good for the planet because, and this is I'm not quite. I, th- I think no, no, no. no I'll, I think that's no. a that's a no, no, no. I mean, no, no. yes, I'll, he, I'll, I'll, I'll finish the sentence <laughs> because it will lead to a dramatic reduction in global emissions. Right? He's basically yeah. saying if we sell more gas, then emissions come down because, you know, countries all of a sudden say, oh yeah, well, I'll, I'll get off coal and I'll buy gas. What is the evidence point for no, this? No, I don't think that's what he was saying, Murph. To be fair, I think he was saying. Thing it was. No, because I was there. Uh, <laughs> I think the point he was making is Western Australia can help the world decarbonise through critical minerals yes. and other things. Right. And getting them out of the ground is not without cost for emissions. Sure. And there will be emissions as they get the critical minerals you out of think, the ground. You don't think it related to gas? With gas, comments. with gas, he was saying, and by the way, I say, to be clear, in an Australian context, you see, there's some people say, oh, look, gas is no lower emissions than coal. Well, let me say this. I'm not going to argue about, you know, when it's burning. Well, it's right? methane. When it's burning. I'll tell you this. When gas isn't being burnt, there's zero emissions. Mm-hmm. You've got a coal-fired power station on, it's burning emissions, whether you need the energy or not. Yeah. The one thing about coal is it's not flexible. The one thing about gas is it's flexible. Yes. Okay, so this is the big virtue of coal, of, sorry, of gas, gas. for yep. domestic energy production. Yep. It is highly flexible. So you're not burning one iota during the day when we've got plenty of energy. You turn, that's what we call peaking and firming. Perhaps, yeah. you know, we need to do more to explain what peaking and firming actually is. It's turning a power station on when you need it, when you've run out of renewables in yes. effect, right? Yeah. It's a very important underpinning yeah, of the energy system. Sure. And now, I used to, I used to say, well, you can turn a gas-fired power station off and on with 15 minutes notice. It's now basically two minutes notice with some technological improvements. That's very handy as you're moving to 82% renewables yep. to have that yep. in backup. And um, the other point is gas use is declining in Australia. That's you know that's partly a result of government policies, but production is declining faster. Hence, there's a gap in 2026 and 2027. We don't have enough gas in 2026, 2027. Hence, we brought down the gas code to say we want... You know, it's complicated, but we want, if you're going to do new gas, you want exemption, it's got to go in the domestic market because we've got to fill that gap. Now, the Greens don't have an answer to that, frankly. They just don't. You know, they say, oh, no new gas. Well, how are they going to keep the gas-fired power stations running in 2026? I'll tell you what they say. They say, well, rip up the export contracts. Well, there's a thing called the Constitution, sorry. You know, the Commonwealth cannot just come in and rip up a contract. Um that is contracted to export, what we can do is say we want new supply focused on domestic and then uh, the other thing they say is we'll just electrify everything. Well, we, we are doing that. But even with our electrification policies and Victorian government's efforts and everybody else's, mm. even with gas use coming down, we still have a gap in 2026, 2027. So you're right. It's quite a nice little neat little slogan. I don't deny that. Well, it's, but it's, it, it's, it's not a policy 
which survives contact with reality, if you are managing a complicated economic transition like we are and ensuring reliability as you do so. I've paid that point, but it's, it is more than a slogan in fairness. It is a, a call that aligns with climate well, science. Well, I, I think, though, if, if the Greens were here on this podcast and you asked them, well, hang on, AEMO and the ACCC said there's a shortfall in 2027 and 2026, and that's very bad for Australia not to have enough gas for, one, our gas-fired power stations, and two, those industries, which one day will use green hydrogen, and I'm no one's more forward-leaning than green hydrogen about green hydrogen than me in this building, but ain't here yet, and, you know, we are going to need gas for things like fertilisers and plastics and cement in the meantime. We don't have enough gas for them in 2026, 2027 without some tough calls. The Greens don't have an answer to that. If they say, we'll rip up the contracts, they need to explain how they'll deal with the constitution and the potential hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of compensation that would be required, I don't think they'd be too keen to pay those to the gas companies. Sure. I mean, you're right, you're right on the complexity of the issue, but the, but nonetheless, it's a cut-through position and it aligns with yeah, climate I mean, science and it is causing Labor trouble on uh, and their I, own look, left flank. So. I, I understand it's a simple argument, but here again, I mean, I'll, I'll say this, Murph, you know, the Greens moved to disallow that gas code this week. I, I warned that this would be a problem um, and that you know, it's the, it's a bit of gas regulation. They say they 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 don't like the gas companies. They voted. They actually moved to rip up the regulation on the gas companies, and you know, I said that's a mistake. They moved it. Who walked in and voted with them? Matt Canavan, One Nation, and that other Babbitt, fellow, Ralph Babbitt yes. from, from from the Palmer United yes, Party. Palmer. Yes. I mean, look around and see the company you keep. They voted to rip up the gas code because to be to their credit, you won't find me saying this very often, Canavan and One Nation and Babbitt are unavowedly pro-fossil fuels, yes. right? They love no, the no, stuff. No, they are consistent. So, they, yes. so the Greens, congratulations, moved this little thing. And who did they get on board with them, those guys? That shows, with respect, they are wrong and it shows their policy solution doesn't survive contact with reality. Okay. Well, anyway, we could go on for another half an hour, but you can't. Um, <laughs> and uh, I probably can't either, sadly. Um, anyway, thank you for your time, Chris. I appreciate it. Uh, obviously, we will be glued to Adam Morton's tremendous coverage out of COP because yeah. our climate and environment editor will be with you over in uh, Dubai shortly. So anyway, we will hang on all of those developments. Thank you for making time in a really busy last week. Thank you to you guys for listening the episode this week was produced by Phoebe McElwraith. The executive producer is Molly Glassy. The end. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.